Sometimes in Australia we have to describe what a Buddhist monastery is, maybe for a form or a document for some government department. So sometimes they describe it as a place for the study and practice of meditation. And that's not a bad description, it's maybe not the full description. You might expand it to say a place for the study and practice of Dhamma Vinaya, or the study and practice of the Eightfold Path. The Buddha always praised those who are willing to learn, to gain knowledge. And when describing humans and particularly men, he said, uh, men tend to, as they get older, they get larger, they bulk up. But the man who's not interested in learning bulks up, but his mind doesn't change just like an ox gets fatter with age but remains ignorant of the Four Noble Truths. Whereas the wise man, even though physically he bulks up, gets heavier, but mentally he takes on knowledge and learns about the path so he can become wiser. Wisdom being defined as knowing how to bring the mind to peace, free it from stress, from suffering, penetrate the Four Noble Truths. In forest monasteries, even though we have many books and other educational requisites, the emphasis that we've uh, received from our teaching teachers the emphasis is on a particular kind of inner learning not just accumulating knowledge of the Dhamma in a superficial way by reading, listening, watching things, talking but using that as a foundation then turning to develop the inner knowledge that knowledge which will really bring the mind to peace and clarity, clear knowledge and vision of the way things are, which leads to a freeing the mind from its craving, attachment, ignorance, that cycle of ignorance conditioning, the making of karma, experiencing the fruits of karma, which condition more ignorance cycle of samsara which we're all stuck in. Gaining the knowledge that helps us to free free ourselves from that cycle. So this is an inner knowledge which goes beyond just concepts and ideas. So even though we do study, we read, we learn, we have to bring this knowledge up internally 
and develop the Dhamma eye, the ability of the mind to know inwards, inwardly. Even as we learn the Dhamma through books and listening to teachings, even then sometimes we get, <coughs> we trick ourselves by thinking the more we know, the more knowledge and information we accumulate somehow, the closer to the Dhamma will be. But it's also something we have to look at. Maybe there's also some craving and delusion affecting our view on that. So we get caught into a habit of always seeking more information, new information. And we're not really seeing the mind that lies behind that. We're actually just caught into another more refined kind of craving. I mean, in the beginning maybe it's not such a bad kind of craving because this knowledge of the Dhamma, the Vinaya, can be helpful to us. But eventually we have to start turning our attention inwards, developing the path inwardly, developing mindfulness, samadhi and then insight. <coughs> In the forest monasteries, we learn, particularly in the beginning, we learn through the presence of other Sangha members and particularly through a teacher. We have an Acharya. This is the way Ajahn Man taught, the way Ajahn Chah taught, Ajahn Anand. And you'll find this model throughout the forest monasteries. That's because not only are we picking up information from the teacher, but we're also gaining through example and through the Sangha as a whole. Much of our learning isn't just remembering words, concepts, ideas, but it's also seeing Dhamma Vinaya in practice, the training in practice, following uh, other bhikkhus, This is the way the practice of meditation, kamatana, the practice of the Vinaya is handed down from generation to generation. We don't have so many formal lessons. We do have them, but not that many where we sit down with books, discuss, have explanations. We're also getting an on-the-job training all the time being reminded of the rules. We have routines, practices, things we have to do, things we shouldn't do. And this is accumulating a, an inner kind of awareness coming through the practice of restraint and composure that's required to, if we keep the Vinaya and follow the Vinaya and the, the rules of training, follow the routines, you're developing an inner awareness that's guiding you and that takes the mind beyond just concepts, information. It's also just knowing yourself from moment to moment, that very special quality that is hard to pinpoint when you talk about it, but it's something that comes up the more you practice.
Now the forest monasteries, they emphasize learning to surrender. They say surrender to the Vinaya, surrender to the monastic form, the training rules, the routines, the particular practices. Surrender to the Sangha, the Vinaya, the hierarchy, surrender to the teacher. It's something Ajahn Chah emphasized over and over again. He had many disciples, many of them became teachers in their own right, with their own monasteries. And monks who had gone to live or ordain with Ajahn Chah, from time to time they're sent off to branch monasteries. And often the teacher was not what they thought of as their ideal teacher in there, the picture they had in their mind of an ideal teacher, which might have been something more like Ajahn Chah. Maybe the other teacher wasn't quite like that. But Ajahn Chah said, you still learn from that experience. You might not agree with everything they say or their character, like everything about their character. But this process of giving up and learning on the job from a teacher, you can gain much wherever you are, whatever the teacher is, as long as they're keeping the Vinaya and they're encouraging you in the practice in the right way. You still learn from that experience. You learn to transcend some of your own prejudices and attachments that maybe you brought in into the robes from the lay life. You learn to bring your mind up to another level where you're not just always judging and following your preferences as far as teachers and monasteries and routines go. And in terms of actual learning, you gain very powerful impressions on your mind from living with practitioners who have practiced longer than you, even if you don't feel they're the most enlightened teacher or the wisest, they don't say wise sayings or they don't do heroic feats of asceticism or something. But just the impressions you get from living with fellow Sangha members and teachers last with you for a lifetime and they're constantly conditioning your jitter, hopefully in a very good way. Certainly in a very unique way, in a way that you can't get out in the lay life where the standards of sila, mindfulness, and wisdom are much, much different, varied, unreliable. So we're learning in this practice, and not just book learning, but learning from our daily experience in the monastery, from the environment, the atmosphere, the people around us. And it's a step-by-step -step process. And a lot of the early steps are drummed into you as a monk. If you stay at Wapapong, often you get awadas almost daily from Lumpur Liam now. In the old days from Ajahn Chah, we stay at Wapmapjan from Ajahn Anam. Often the awadas are very repetitive, similar, day after day, just slight variations on a theme, maybe occasional anecdotes or stories. but. Over a period of time, you realize a lot of the teaching is very repetitive. That's because in the beginning we have to just keep being told over and over again. 
even though our desire is to seek new, the new, new information, new experiences. They keep bringing us back to the same old practices, same old reflections. And it's because we, when we begin our practice, our mind is very wild, scattered, stubborn. It hasn't been trained previously very much in the lay life, certainly not at a, on a refined level, as you find in a monastery. So there's a purpose to this, the method of training, a lot of repetition, a lot of emphasis on just basic practices, basic principles of practice. There's a purpose to that. And like in the time of the Buddha, somebody asked him about how he trains the monks. They said, you're considered the foremost trainer of monks in the world, the world class. How do you do it? And there's this elephant trainer there. He said, well, how do you train your elephants? He said, well, when we first get them from the forest, they're still very wild. We have to use quite strict methods with them and a lot of discipline. You can't, you know, when you get a new elephant from the forest, you can't start putting people on its back and having it transport people around town. It won't work. It'll just go wild and throw the people off. It's a step-by-step -step gradual training. First of all, you might have to starve the elephant a bit so it calms down, loses a bit of energy, and it becomes more humble, more willing to listen and follow the instructions of the elephant trainer. Sometimes you have to poke it with a stick or a rod. But little by little you work through the, the coarser reactions and behavior of the elephant. It starts to calm down. Then you might just be able to use a few sharp words or reminders eventually very calm words, it just understands the language of the tamer, it gets its food and it can move from picking up heavy objects like logs, dragging things to actually picking a person up on its trunk, put it on its back. But it's a gradual training. And the Buddha said, what do you do with an elephant that can't be trained? Do you have any? He said, yeah, sometimes they're so wild, so stubborn. We can't train them. We just take them away and kill them. There's nothing else we can do with them. And the Buddha said, yeah, I, I also sometimes kill the monks, meaning he also trains them in a gradual way, training them in the Vinaya rules, the practice of mindfulness, meditation. But then there's some monks that are so stubborn, so opinionated, whatever, that he can't teach them. So he says he kills them. The way the Buddha kills them is he just stops teaching them, ignores them, because he's not going to waste his breath, waste his effort on somebody who won't listen. This gives us an example or idea of how the Buddha was seeing this training, the training in Dhamma Vinaya. It's a gradual process. You have no choice, but we have to work first of all with our more coarse defilements. So in the beginning in a forest monastery you're always being reminded to practice restraint, restraint in the use of the requisites, composure, mindfulness of speech, mindfulness of how you come and go, just how you move around the monastery, 
practice restraint in how much you sleep, so you're getting up early for a morning meeting or staying up late for an evening meeting. <coughs> These practices are repeated over and over again as a way, an opportunity to bring up more, more effort, more mindfulness, more self-awareness, but then also to shed coarser habits that we may have picked up along the way since we were born, since we lived in the world. Often the teaching is very direct, but also the themes are often very easy to understand, but the difficult part is the application. So like, say moderation in the use of requisites. We learn to be practice contentment with what we've got. <coughs> A very easy theme to understand, but it's something that literally comes up every day, because every day you use requisites. Every day you eat food, you use your lodgings, you request things from the stores when you need, you use robes, you use medicines and so on. You're constantly having to bring up mindfulness, clear comprehension, reflect wisely on what you're doing, what your aim is, how much do you need, and particularly with you know, moderation, it's about getting by with what's available. And you partly you sit, look at what the danger is of immoderate behavior, unrestrained behavior in the use of requisites. So if you eat too much, what happens when you feel sluggish? You become lazy, you want to sleep, you can't sit meditation so easily because your stomach is too full. Maybe that lasts for many hours, that feeling. If you same with say what we call medicinal requisites, often it just means your evening drink, sugar drinks, caffeine and so on. If you are not practicing moderation often takes over the mind. So we drink too much, take in too much sugar, too much caffeine. We get obsessed with brands, tastes, and so on. And again, takes the mind away from the practice of mindfulness from the meditation. Maybe it makes us hard to look after as well. As you use the requisites, we always have to reflect where do they come from? They come from the laity. If we become too rigid in our needs, and then it can become a, a burden, put pressure onto the laity, have to find this, find that for us. So Ajahn Chah, over and over again, he'd emphasize learning to be content with little, fewness of wishes, get by with what's available, so that the mind is just easy and not obsessed, not caught up with always seeking more, seeking just what you want according to your own set of ideals but being easy to be able to live live easily within the monastic form and within what's available. Not just when you're in the, this monastery, say, but when you travel, wherever you go, you learn to be at ease, get by with what's coming your way without having to bother people, be a burden on people. That's a, you know, a reflection that you bring up every day, over and over again. It's not that we're aiming to, kind of, we're not competing with each other to be, see who can be more ascetic. It's, you know, it's a personal reflection on what you need and how you use the requisites that you use and you have 
on the, that are available to you. Some people need more than others in certain areas. Some people eat more than others, drink more than others. Some people sleep more than others. Some people feel the cold, so they wear more clothing than others. Some people are very hot, some people are very cold. You can't always compare by looking at others. You get a small amount of knowledge that way by looking at others, but then you have to look at your own experience and see how you relate to the requisites you use. Another area that Ajahn Chah was always emphasizing, Ajahn Anand as well, is Chakariyanu Yoka, so always bringing out more effort in the practice. What does bringing up effort mean? Well, Lumpur Mahabur says very simply, the effort to establish mindfulness. So I used to say things like, if you're lying on your back, dozing, daydreaming, well, you're not making an effort to bring up mindfulness. If you're asleep, well, obviously you go into a state of deep sleep. That's different, you're resting the body. But then when you wake up, how much effort you put into bringing up mindfulness? putting effort onto establishing awareness of your meditation object. As we go around our business through the day, how much are we seeking distraction in different activities, conversation, reading, doing this, doing that, how much attention we put on bringing up effort to bring, bring attention to our meditation object. Again, it's a basic practice, so part of the mind resists, doesn't want to be told, or get up early in the morning, stay up late, sit when they sit, walk when they walk, work when they work. Part of the mind doesn't like that. But if you appreciate the, the way the training works, little by little the moments of mindfulness improve, they join up, become more continuous, and then the sense of resistance or different reactions we have, the emotions and different states of mind that come up and are less bothersome. We see them arise, but we see them pass away through the practice. And we become tougher, tougher in our practice, more enduring, more resilient because of the, the result of the practice. Another area he emphasized over and over again is the practice of sense restraint, Indriya Sangwara. Something Ajahn Chah said, I always remembered when I was a young monk, he said, don't think this is just like a kind of a basic kindergarten practice that you, you learn, you know, sense restraint, being composed, mindful of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. And then you move on to other sort of more refined dhammas, contemplating emptiness, whatever. So this is a practice that leads from kindergarten right up to university, right up to the masters, to the doctorate. Leads right up to, the, to Nibbana. The practice of mindfulness with sense contact. Practice of guarding over the mind as we have sense contact, sense restraint, composure. We practice it at every level from day one in the monastery right through to our last breath, 
it never really changes, but maybe the object of our sense restraint becomes more refined, more subtle as we become more skilled in the practice. But it's never a practice that we leave behind or drop or think, oh, that's, that's a basic one, I don't, I don't need to do that anymore. Because it will come back and bite us. You know, whether you're, you've been a monk a few days, a few months, or 20 or 30 years, if you're unrestrained in your senses, well, it will bring up kilesa. If you're looking with lust, looking with aversion, hearing with lust, hearing with aversion, tasting, smelling, touching, or just caught into mental states, daydreams, fantasies. If you're not restrained, you're not guarding over your mind, well, kilesa arises, and kilesa brings suffering. If you keep contemplating this, well, gradually you become fed up with suffering. So then you naturally want to restrain your senses more. You can't be bothered looking at things that stir up strong passions and emotions, or in, indulging in them. This gives the mind a certain peace, a certain seclusion inside, then the mind can start to contemplate, go around down to the roots of why it is our sense contact does stir up kilesa. We start to contemplate an dukkha anatta in experience. You're seeing whatever the sense contact, pleasant, unpleasant, it arises, passes away. It's dukkha, it's changing all the time. These are just conditions of mind, there's no one who owns them. There's no self, any substantial self in there. It's just conditions, rising, passing away. As we see that, then the mind becomes more, de more detached, less fascinated with sense stimulation, always looking for more sense stimulation. It knows there's, there's going to be nothing at the end of the at the end of the line, at the end of this experience, there's nothing to take away from it. So the whole experience loses value. And we don't give so much importance to always seeking out exciting sensual experiences or even getting upset or disappointed by the unpleasant ones. The mind becomes more equanimous towards sense contact and it's the objects of the senses, because we know they're just that much. They arise, the contact takes place, and then they cease, go away. And you can't own any of it. In the beginning, it's a more basic practice, in a sense, restraint. It's maybe just learning to look away when you want to look learning to guard the desire to eat or indulge more when you're faced with nice food or nice drinks and so on. You know, the way you walk, the way you sit, the way you talk. One who's restrained you know, doesn't run around wildly or talk in an excited way wildly. Guffaw when they laugh, you might chuckle or smile, but don't indulge in extreme moods. In the beginning, it's just a sort of a basic practice like that. But the more you practice it, then you become more refined in your practice of sense restraint. And just little mood changes you pick up. Other people's mood changes you pick up. You see someone, they f 
something happens, they fall into a bad mood, you just watch. And then you see, oh, their mood passes. Or maybe you're looking at yourself and you fall into a bad mood, but then you watch as it gradually lifts. The mind retain, returns to a sense of normality. Ajahn Chah said your aim really with the practice of sense restraint, whether it's on the coarse level or the more refined level, is just developing a sense of normality of mind. It feels normal, feels at ease, feels normal. When we lose our restraint, it becomes abnormal, unnatural. We get excited, we get high with stimulation, with pleasure, with pleasant objects. We become down, disappointed, depressed, angry with unpleasant sense contact, sense objects. With sense restraint, we're maintaining that sense of evenness of mind, the normality of the mind, whatever's going on, whatever the experience around us. We in encounter pleasant experiences or unpleasant experiences. The mind remains normal because of the practice of sense restraint. So it has a liberating force on the mind. By the standards of the world, it's boring. People practicing sense restraint, not following their moods, their desires. Sounds boring, sounds limited, sounds like not what you want. But if you start to taste a mind that is just in a normal state, peaceful, at ease in the present moment, no regrets, no great yearnings, hankering after things, wanting this, wanting that, but just feeling very normal. You start to appreciate that feeling of normality more and more. You become mindful of it. You become mindful of the, the mind that is feeling normal as a result of sense, guarding the senses. And then you be obviously become aware when it's not normal, when it becomes excitable, scattered, distracted, averse, angry, depressed, whatever. You start to compare in under the light of wisdom, mindfulness and wisdom reflecting. You know, the state of mind that is normal becomes the most attractive thing. All the other movements and moods that the mind throws up are less attractive because they're intoxicating, they're deluding and they lead to suffering. So quite naturally the mind starts to throw them out, give them up, abandon them. You know, the, as sense restraint becomes more refined, the sense of mindfulness guarding over the mind becomes more continuous, more refined. And it's not such a big effort to let go of kilesa. Sure, there's still kilesa there, still arising, and the causes and conditions for kilesa to arise are still there sense of self may be there, but it's becoming more subtle. In the more coarse kilesas, it's just natural to let them go. You don't want lust in the mind. You don't want anger. So if it arises, you quickly want to just let it go. And it, the mind itself will just let go through the presence of mindfulness, wisdom, reflecting correctly, correctly wisely, reflecting wisely on the experience. This sense of normalcy becomes more prominent. Sometimes even you know, meditators, Buddhist practitioners are still looking for some kind of 
wow experience where they have great visions or great spiritual, spiritually uplifting, inspiring experiences. And although they can come, sometimes we have great experiences of pity and sukha. But the actual result, end result of the practice is more this experience of normality, where the mind is just normal and it knows the way things are. You experience something pleasant, it knows, oh, it's just pleasant, it's just like that. Experiences unpleasantness, oh, it's just like that. But the mind itself inside stays normal. It knows these things are impermanent. If you grab onto them, you suffer. You can't own them anyway, so you're just letting them go. So many people said, you know, living with teachers like Ajahn Chah, many of the other forest masters, it's not actually that they're doing kind of amazing things or saying amazing things all the time. It's more this sense of constancy, normality. You might say sometimes you're down to earth, you're very grounded, wise people, and just normal. But not normal in the sense of the world, according to the fashions of the world and the, the standards of, the changing standards of culture and society. So it's not normal in the sense of you know, getting angry about certain issues and getting angry about the injustices of the world or getting very excited and passionate about certain things. It's not that kind of normal, it's just a sense of peace, normality towards all conditions due to the presence of sense restraint and then that liberating the mind to reflect wisely on experience and know it for what it is, you know the way the body is. It's just getting older every day, gets sick, just heading towards its death, knowing the way mental states arise, pass away, you knowing these very simple chants that we do every day, yes. Sabbe Sankara Anicca. Sankara means all formations, all conditioned things, body and mind. The body is a conditioned thing. We don't really own it. It just arises and gradually ceases. It's born, gets old, gets sick and dies. Mental states, mental formations, moods, ideas, thoughts, they arise and they cease. What arises, what ceases is dukkha. If you grab onto it, it's just dukkha and it causes suffering, chasing after things that don't last, holding on to them, identifying with them. And we can't own any of it, can't have any of it. So the mind of the area and the it, they see these Dhamma teachings just quite naturally, quite normally. It's quite normal for them just to see our impermanence. It rises, passes away. So there's no suffering in the mind. The mind is peaceful. It's not necessarily that they're having some great spiritual experience or going off into a trance or floating away into the clouds or something. And when unenlightened people describe it, they like to do it like that. So the way we write stories, make movies and so on. But maybe it's just, they're just knowing 
things that arise, things pass. Very ordinary, simple truths, but knowing them all the time. The mind is no longer deluded, caught out by things. Obviously it does bring its result. The mind becomes light, happy in itself, separated from the suffering of the world, suffering of the body, suffering of mental states. So if you could describe it, maybe there are some special attributes you could describe, those kind of experiences of the areas. But the overwhelming kind of message you get from the suttas or just talking to these teachers is just very normal. And it's just the way things are. In Thai we say tamada, ordinary. Just knowing, oh, it's the way it is. There's nothing more you can add on to it. You can't dress it up make the truth some other way. The truth is just the truth. Even the Buddha said, you know, the truth, the Dhamma, is the Dhamma. Whether a Buddha arises in the world or doesn't arise, the truth is the truth. It's whether human beings are willing to practice and look and investigate and bring their minds to realize and see the truth or not. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight and uh, you can carry on practicing till uh, evening chanting 11.30.